Okay, so I struggled a little bit with today's author because he's not the best interviewee about himself. He generally doesn't tell very interesting stories about himself, but I think he's one of, for sure, he's one of the most well-known writers and well-regarded writers about a very difficult subject, which is uh, finance. And so I think it's worth learning from him and also understanding the career bet that he made on himself, um, taking a leap from traditional banking to writing, and then also how he finds topics to write about. So maybe maybe for folks that don't know, uh, you have written a newsletter at Bloomberg for how long now? Twelve years. I've been at Bloomberg for about eight years, and the newsletter probably didn't start right away, but I don't know, six, seven years, plus or minus. And you took a very uh, normal path to doing that. You were valedictorian of Harvard. Not exactly. Very high at your class sure. at Harvard. Yeah. Uh, then you taught Latin for a year. I did. Then you went to Yale Law School. Yep. Then you went to a Wachdale, yeah, and then you went to Goldman, yeah. Very normal path into having a newsletter, writing, journalist, all that stuff. It's a very normal path in the sense that, like, if you get a classics degree, you go to law school because there's nothing else to do. And if you go to law school and you do well, you go to Wachdale because it's like the number one firm in the prestige rankings. And if you're a M and A lawyer in like 2007, you're like, ah, oh, I should be in finance. And then Goldman is a sort of natural like. You know, it's like very obvious, like prestige career moves. And you took then, the path of like, uh, like just the next logical it's step. Kind of the default, the yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I joke that I didn't make a uh, decision for myself until I was like 24 years old. I just sort of followed a path ahead of me that other people had done that seemed successful. Oh yeah, I mean that's yeah. I was, I was just thinking that I, I um, I gave a talk at, at actually Yale Law School and they asked about my career decisions and I was like, I only actually made one career decision. Right? Yeah, like I sort of did the normal thing and then. One day at Goldman, I was like, I'm going to be, go be a financial blogger. And that was a strange decision, but everything else was pretty strange. How old were you at the time? <sighs> like early 30s. Early 30s. And you just, were you, were you, what was the thought process then that you were going to go be a, uh, a blogger? Well, I didn't want to do it anymore. And so. Didn't want to do Goldman. Yeah. I had like vaguely imagined being a writer. And, you know, I was like a person who had an office job and I sat at a desk reading like fun internet writing of the like you know, 2000s. And so I sort of thought, this looks like fun internet writing. So yeah. I, I was like- This is like Gawker. Yeah, like Gawker and, and like Dealbreaker. Dealbreaker, you know, like yeah. the sort of early Dealbreaker was, was fabulous. Um, and, uh, but certainly the Gawker and the Gawker, you know, offshoots. Um, and I was like, that looks really fun. And I had vaguely imagined being a writer, but I had no idea what that meant. You know, I like thought of myself as one day being a writer, but like I didn't like, I wasn't like writing a novel at night. And uh, I also really didn't like, being an investment banker anymore. And I didn't have a lot of responsibilities and I was saving a lot of money. And I was like, I'm going to stop doing this and spend like a year finding myself. And I actually tried to do that. I like went to my boss and I was like, I'm going to quit. And he's like, what are you going to do? And I was like, I don't know, find what, figure out what I'm going to do. And he's like, don't quit now. Like go take a leave of absence. And so I went back to my desk and like, he was like, just work a few more weeks and then you can take a leave of absence. And then like Dealbreaker was hiring and I was like, oh, I should do that. And so I, I, uh, a combination of not wanting to be a banker anymore and like the vaguest of dreams about being a writer, I, I left for a deal breaker. The, co the confluence of those two things. I, were, where were you in your personal life at that point? Did you have, you didn't have kids. Did you have a wife? 
uh, who's living with a woman who's now my wife. Yeah. We did not have kids. Was she, we a dog. was she saying like, or you're out of your mind or was she um, supportive? Like what was the, the support group around you? Parents or, or siblings or wife, uh, soon to be wife. What was the reaction that I'm going to go be a blogger? Uh, you know, like it was kind of clear that I was not happy banking and also not like really cut out for it. And so she did want me to like figure something out. I think that like her rational, uh, suggestion was why don't you try like blogging on the side to see if you're any good at it before you quit your job to do it full time when you've never done it. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. But I just, I'm tired when I come home. And so I'm just going to do it and see what happens. Um, I think she was skeptical, but she didn't, she was supportive. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. And so you were at deal breaker for like two years, two years. Mm -hmm. And, and what was, Take me through like what you set out to go do originally. You know, I had no idea, right? Like I sort of liked internet writing and sort of vaguely, you know, I didn't really know what journalism was like, and like, you know, sort of early two thousand like 2000s blogs like conflated these things, but there's like, you know, there's like breaking news and going out and getting sources and getting sure. scoops and stuff like that. And then there's like typing your thoughts in a box, right? And Clearly now my career is like typing my thoughts in a box and I try not to break news. But like, I didn't know, I didn't like really have a clear sense of that distinction in my mind and, and Dealbreaker did not like enforce that distinction. So I was like, I'm gonna go be like a swashbuckling journalist and also like make really good jokes. And you know, Dealbreaker at the time was was, run, was like essentially a solo project of Best Levin, who's this like genius writer of like comedy. And so I was like, I'll write jokes like Bess. And you know, like I sort of didn't know what I was gonna do, but I sort of, there were models on the internet of what writing looked like. And then I did it and over time sort of like figured out what I was actually good at. And how, how long did it take you to land on the voice that we we know today uh, that comes out in the Bloomberg writing? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I want to say that like by like six months or so after starting at Dealbreaker, I was writing like myself. And like early on, I was not. I was like very yeah, much yeah. putting on a trying post. to be someone else. Um, it felt more natural after about six months. But I think that the sort of the voices evolved over time, and and uh, I, even like you know now I go back like five years, and you know I've been doing this in some form for like eleven years now. I go back like five years, and I'm like oh, this is like very different. Like, it doesn't sound like me. So. Yeah. so you did that, and did you have a newsletter at the time that you were uh, publishing to, or is it just going on the website? It was just going on the website. Dealbreaker was like a real blog. Um, like in a way that is like been rendered more difficult by sort of social media and people's changing media consumption habits. Like I think of like the email newsletter as being kind of the successor to sort of classic blogging and that like it's, it's like associated with, with a person's voice and it has mul multiple top, multiple like items yeah, in a sure. day and you like go visit it every day. In my case, it comes to your email, but like, you know, old school deal breaker like you go to the website every day and i think that's harder to do on a web-based blog now and now it's like the newsletter is like the way to get that relationship the evolution of it yeah, yeah. And, and so why do you think so i assume if if six months in you started to feel like your yourself started to yeah. started to feel like at least some version of the product we have today what were you just following your own interests of like what you found interesting or yeah. how were you picking what to write write about i mean it's mostly that but it's also like just sort of you know uh, a sense of like particularly now with the newsletter like it goes out every day and so like you have to write something every day and you know the format is you have to write multiple things every day for the most part and so 
there's just like a sort of like just necessity component to yeah like you sort of write about the big news that's in finance um but no most it's mostly it's just sort of what is interesting to me and it's like part of like the like finding my voice aspect is like you type what is interesting to you you hope people read it and then like if you do that enough times and enough people read it, you're like, oh, like what is interesting to me like resonates with people. And so it's okay for me to pursue my interests. I always, I always like, even now, like I'm surprised by the extent to which like when I write something really like, you know, I was a, when I was at Goldman, I was an equity derivatives banker. And like I did these like very niche, like corporate equity derivatives trades that like, like no one, like there's no like media about them. No one yeah, writes yeah. about them. They're not interesting. But like, Every so often, you know, like Tesla got in a fight with JP Morgan over one of these trades. And I was like, well, this is what I did for a living. I got to write about this in a sort of like, you know, in the weeds kind of way. People love that stuff. Like, it's always like, it's always surprising to me that people are interested in like the more arcane, like weird niche interests of mine, as well as like me writing about, you know, Elon buying Twitter. The internet's uh, remarkable in that regard, like the ability to have things that are seemingly niche, I mean, for better and for worse, right? But uh, if you have niche interests, it turns out a lot of people have niche interests as well that'll follow along with that. Yeah, I think there's like a, um, in like mainstream financial journalism, there's a sort of like bias that people are not interested in like technicalities and the weeds and like complicated products and like just the mechanics of things and like, uh, I feel like that bias is wrong and it's like, it's a nice opportunity for me because I get to write about those things in a place with relatively little competition. Yeah. It, it seems like your tone is, is kind of general amusement with all the machinations. Like it's, sure. it's not really the same cynicism that comes across. And I think that's what resonates with finance people or legal people or whoever it is that i don't know the majority of your followers but is yeah, that i don't know either by, by the way but like there's a lot of tech people and i think of i think of a lot of tech people as having the same like like it's people who like like structures and mechanics and like complication like for as a as a sort of like intellectual puzzle and like as like an aesthetic appreciation and so yeah it's like like i was a derivative structure and i wasn't like you know, an evil person trying to put one over on my clients. And I also wasn't like, oh, this is evil, you know? And I wasn't like, oh, this is good. This is yeah. like saving the world. I was like, this is interesting. You yeah. know? Like, it's just like, you know, you're doing complicated, interesting structures and trying to solve puzzles. And that was appealing to me. And it felt appealing to a lot of people that I worked with and just in the financial industry generally. Like, you just like, you know, across the industry, you see a lot of people who like, it's clear that their interest is in like solving puzzles and that sort of like amused, like intellectual interest in things is, uh, I don't know, it's like underrepresented in like, you know, media about finance. And so it's like something that I can do. Was being a lawyer or uh, working on derivatives uh, at an investment bank, like I, I feel like you do a really good job of um, distilling down co seemingly complex things to layman's terms. I remember going back and reading your, uh, a couple of weeks ago, the Luna Terra thing. Oh, yeah. And uh, one of your bullet points in the whole thing was like, if you can convince anyone that this is worth anything, then you're in business, yeah. right? And it was explaining this very niche stable coin concept in a way that made a lot of sense. Was that was that something that came naturally to you growing up? Was it something that you refined at, uh, as a banker or a lawyer in terms of being able to explain these things in kind of a simple way? Yeah. I mean, I think it is something that you learn in those jobs where you're like a specialist but like particularly like when I was a derivatives banker, like 
you're building like sort of complicated, you know, like you're talking to like the quants who are like building the, the models for your like things. And they're like talking about like, you know, option Greeks and like look back features and things. And then like you leave that room and you go talk to the client who's like, you know, like reasonably financially sophisticated. It's like a CFO of a company, but it's not someone who's interested in derivatives, right? Or who cares about option Greeks. And you're trying to tell them a story that is, uh, that is like, that like has some like economic, like intuition to it. And that is just like appealing in a sort of straightforward, simple way. Um, and so that sort of thing of like translating the like weird mechanics of the product into something that you can tell someone that is like a compelling story was quite hard for me at the time. Like, cause I just like yeah. going and pitching it to clients, but like it turned out to be a good practice for what I do now. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I, I struggle at times with, um, the altitude at which to talk about things. Right. So I'll spend time talking about different venture things and all people will tell me, Oh, you're, why explain that? Everyone knows that. And I'm like, yeah. well, no, a lot of people don't actually know that. And so it's kind of depends on who the audience is. Um, yeah. I mean, I definitely find like, as I, as, as I, as time goes by, I get more interested in explaining things at a, like a higher level of generality, um, where it's less like, this is how like this clause of the contract works. And like more like, this is the broad economic intuition for it. And it's like, you mentioned Luna, like, like I write too much about crypto and like people get mad because they're like right about, you know, real stuff. But I do love crypto because it's like, it, it's this like lab for like financial intuitions, you know, where like, uh, like, like what, like what is Luna reinventing, right? Like something, like yeah. it's not like, it's not like a concept that came from outer space. Like it's, it's like putting together pieces of previous financial innovations and then like throwing it on the blockchain. And if you can like describe the economic intuitions of it, it's like, um, First of all, you know not to invest in it. But secondly, like uh, it's just like I don't know. It's like it's 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 interesting to ex for explaining concepts. Like yeah. a lot of crypto, like I'm not that interested in like who's getting rich on it. But like as a way to like understand the like, sort of deeper financial concepts, like crypto is is like so often great for that. Well, it's like we're going through uh, one of my buddies jokes that it, it's like we have a bunch of engineers learning financial regulations for the first time, yeah. like over the course of, you know, all this stuff that happened in the twenties, thirties, forties or yeah. whatever, we're sort yeah. of going through it in the wild west right now of crypto. Um, I want to, I want to go there in a second, but so, so you were at deal breaker and then went over to Bloomberg. What was that? What was the thought process uh, at that point? Uh, you know, Bloomberg has a bigger platform and I've a bigger, bigger budget. And yeah. Uh, yeah, you've heard of it. Like, yeah. it's nice to, like, I don't call people a lot to be like, hi, I'm a reporter, you know, but like I do occasionally email people to be like, hey, I read for Bloomberg. And, and it's it's a lot more helpful to say that than to say I read for Dealbreaker. Yeah. Um, and, and, and like, you know, the, the terminal readership, the, the readers of the Bloomberg terminal are good, right? Like you have a, a good audience, like you have a lot of smart people yeah who, captive that are in the I hope they're not captive well yeah like they're, yeah they're, like, they're there you're, like you sort they're of there you have the smart readers yeah there. um did you did you ever think through different monetization models like once you came over did you say hey i i want this to be free and broad in distribution or did you think through doing a subscription paid newsletter at some point i mean conditional on bloomberg writing me a paycheck i want as much distribution, distribution as, as possible, as possible. Yeah, yeah. yeah yeah um, so I would rather, you know, right now it's free on the, on the, the, the email newsletter is free. And then like the web version is like part of the general Bloomberg paywall. Yeah. And if they came to me in tomorrow and said, we'd like to take it out from behind the paywall, I'd be like, great, that's fabulous. Yeah. Um, 
But if they cut my salary, then I wouldn't. So. <laughs> <laughs> everything, everything has a price, I guess. Yeah. Um, so what's your, uh, so, so what's your writing process? I mean, you're pretty prolific in your ability to put out, uh, stuff. How do you, how do you go through, you know, determining this? Uh, there's not really a process. Like I wake up and panic and just try to sort of type, um, it's, 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 it's very sort of underorganized. Like in my perfect world, I would, you know, write from five in the morning until, you know, 11 and then publish the thing at noon. And then in the afternoon, sort of get ready for the following day's newsletter. But in practice, all of those things slip a lot. You know, part of it is just like my process is now increasingly like hanging out with my kids in the morning. So it's like everything slips later in the day and gets harder to uh, prepare for the following day. But it's it's very much panic based, you know. I sort of like read the web, flag some things that I want to write about, and then like kind of figure out what I'm going to say, mostly by writing and occasionally by walking around the house or whatever. How do you, how do you determine what's what's actually interesting? I assume you've gotten pretty good feedback loops over the the years of readers responding to things, and how, how do you think about like what to what to go into? I mean, it's it's mostly just literally what I find aesthetically interesting yeah um you know it's also it's very much things where i feel like i have uh some sort of distinctive value add where like i don't want to i feel like a lot of people are really good about writing about the fed and i I have no special knowledge of the fed and so i'm just not going to write about the fed right um but like if there's some if there's some weird niche element of like crypto or of you know equity derivatives or whatever that people aren't writing about or like, you know, like I read a lot about Elon's takeover of Twitter. I was an M&A lawyer for a little while. Yeah. Right? And there are not a lot of M&A lawyers like writing on the web about Elon's Twitter thing. And there are a lot of people writing like wrong things about, you know, whether he can get out of the deal or like just sort of like basic mechanics of it. And like people, you know, I, I don't write a lot about like the mechanics of like, you know, like M&A deal certainty because like no one cares except now they care. Right. Yeah. So it's like, it's been fun for me. Um, but no, it's like mostly it's like things where I think I have some sort of specialized knowledge or just like a perspective that, uh, that is not sort of not the thing that everyone else is writing. Yeah. So. Interesting. Yeah. I don't have much of an interesting insight to wrap up with. Um, I, I think for sure <laughs> you want to find topics on which, you have some unique insight that people are interested in. It's always that combination, right? Um, I often talk about why the concept of ikigai, you know, where uh, the thing that you should work on is the combination of what you can do, what you can get paid for, what you love, what people want, uh, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, that four circle uh, overlapping diagram. That's usually too complicated because the internet uh, will generally get you paid for doing stuff that you love. Uh, sorry, the internet will generally get you paid for doing stuff that people want. <clears throat> so what you can get paid for and what people want, that is the same circle. And then if you do things long enough, then what you're good at and what you enjoy doing is also pretty much the same thing. So really, it, the four circles reduces down to two circles, which is just find the intersection of what you love and what people want from you. Simple, huh? <laughs> 